Welcome to the newest edition of the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. My name is Jeff Shane, specialty editor for sports at the Daily Sun. With me, as always, is Drew Shaltry. JT Wilcox is dropping by. We will talk a lot of spring football as VHS has already played both of its green and gold game and its spring game, a bit of a truncated road trip way up to Union County. And JT will have the uh, details on that as we get ready for Wildwood spring game on Thursday night. And we'll also touch on some of the other spring sports that are wrapping up in the second segment. Uh, J- Drew and I will talk some golf as we get ready for the second major of the year, the PGA Championship at what should be a chilly Oak Hill Country Club up in Rochester, New York. And then we'll come back and it, we're down to four teams in the NBA. Some of them we may have expected. Sometimes uh, some of them we may not have expected, but we have the conference finals coming up for the NBA. We'll have that in the third segment. But uh, first of all, high school sports, high school football, JT, welcome. Drew, thanks for always being here. VHS had a long road trip and a perhaps even longer game uh, losing to Union County. And you made the trip up there. What did that look like? (laughs) Well, let me just say, I didn't even know that Lake Butler, Florida was a place on my GPS. Uh, That was definitely an out-of-town trip. Uh, no offense to any residents of Lake Butler if you have family in Lake Butler. I don't think they have Both internet, so they're not going to Yeah, this, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if they <laughs> – that's a great one. Uh, but definitely it was a trip. One, it was definitely an experience just getting to Lake Butler. I was surprised they had a McDonald's. Welcome, uh, welcome to 1R Football, JT. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is every Friday night for me. All right. So, it, But given the school itself, very nice campus. Um, And a great football team resides there as well, uh, which the Villagers found out uh, this past Friday night. Uh, Big team for it to be a one rural uh, division team, uh, big across the board, big up front, uh, had good, great athleticism on the outside as well. And they graduated a good number of uh, players as well. So that shows you that they have a indeed have a program there that can replenish itself. It sounds like Nebraska of the one R level. Yeah, and I think Nebraska looks at them and say, man, that is a small-town team. Um, I, I think, though, in fairness to Union County, they've sustained it better than Nebraska <laughs> Well, has. I will say that. I, I'm, I've got that old-school Nebraska you, thinking, yes. Union County has been good since Nebraska was good <laughs> and still are. So, I mean, when you talk to, just for a little bit of historical context, when you talk to players who were at Wildwood, guys who are coaches now, uh, guys who played there in the 80s and 90s, Union County was a team. Uh, it wasn't 1A at the time, but um, you know, Union County was a team that they knew about that they played back in the day and was always good. So, I mean, this is a, a team with football history for sure. It seems like all they do is farm and play football. So they, I'm pretty sure they're good at both. And that was the case this past Friday. Like I said, VHS went in there. Uh, that was going to be a bit of – that's what Richard Paredes wanted it to be, uh, like a final exam, like a, a final test for the spring uh, for this young group that he has this season. And it, it was a doozy. Uh, it was one that challenged them. Uh, from beginning to end, the end ended up being halftime because uh, some bad weather rolled in. Uh, but to go down 28 nothing to them, um, we saw where VHS needs to grow. And I think we can look at that both figuratively and a bit literally uh, because the size difference between those two programs, those two teams, was just too much, I think, ultimately for VHS to overcome. Uh, 
credit to Coach Pettis and his staff. They were able to scheme some things and kind of create some advantages, maybe create some mismatches where they were able to make some plays in the backfield on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, they were able to get Alvon Isaac on the, on the, uh, out on the edge where he can use his speed and elusiveness, um, which is always a big thing. He's once again going to be their guy, Alvon Isaac is. Uh, but the, I think the big thing, is the, the healthy return of Q Kennedy, Kazorian Kennedy. Uh, for someone who had not had the opportunity to see him play live yet because he missed his whole this past season, the entire season with a knee injury that he sustained this past spring. Uh, so to see him play live, you see, or I saw um, what he brings to the table and how much they missed not having, how much they missed him not being in that lineup. So he's someone that now teams can't just key on. Alvon Isaac. They have a, someone else that they can get in space, that they can get moving, you know, at pre, pre-snap, pre you know, get him on some end of rounds, do different things with him. Uh, so he's someone that's going to add a different dimension uh, to that Buffalo offense. But the key is really going to be, can Pettis find some offensive line play that can just hold up for four quarters every week? What was his kind of demeanor when things were called I'm sure there's just a lot of hey let's get back on the bus before the storm passes through but was he pleased with what he saw was he in great concern we with this size differential he he knew what he was getting into and maybe wanted to get that and I don't know if uh VHS will have that kind of similar opponent lining up f- across from them when the regular season comes. What was his kind of take on this? I think he was in a in a spot where he was he pretty much knew what was going to happen. He wanted to see how those young guys would react. He wanted to see okay, we can get Alvon if we get him to the second level, he can make a play. If we get Q in space, he can use his elusiveness to go and make a play. But he wanted to see those young guys, what are you going to do when it's not just a green and gold game, when we're not in practice, when it's a live opponent, you know, when they're coming out there to, you know, take your head off, so to speak, how can you perform under those pressures? And I think he saw where some of the younger guys like Patrick Harding, who's a 2026 quarterback now, it's crazy we have to use the years because we're at that crazy juncture of the year where they're not quite, they're not, they haven't graduated to the next year yet. So you have to use their uh, graduation year. So 2026 quarterback Patrick Harding, who's basically been taking first quarterback reps while Danny Bidding is still playing baseball, um, had a great spring, had a great inter-squad uh, golden, green and gold game. Didn't really have the same success against Union County. And you saw it because Union County defensive backs, they they looked apart. The and they definitely put pressure and they brought pressure. And he wasn't able to, you know, stand in the pocket and really deliver like he did during the uh, inter-squad game. Uh, so he, I think Coach Pettis knew, he kind of expected some of this. He knew coming out, he said, you know, we got work to do. We're going to spend the entire summer working. We got to commit to the weight room. The coaches have to be better. We got to continue to find ways to put our guys in positions to succeed. Uh, so, I think he knew what was what to expect, and I think he just came out of it knowing, all right, this is a summer that's going to be big and very important for us. And I would imagine a couple extra orders of protein shakes for everybody. I think everybody's going to get locked into the cafeteria and from the from the cafeteria to the weight room and back and forth <laughs> all summer. <laughs> Drew, uh, Wildwood Football is uh, having their spring game on Thursday night. They're going to Hernando. What have you had a chance to see as you've been kind of running around with spring sports too? Yeah, they're very young, and that was something that they expected. Obviously, they had that big graduating class go out, but 
even knowing what was coming, you know, Vince Brown Sr. was a little bit surprised. He was telling me yesterday that he just wrote the roster for this year and he started by copying and pasting last year's roster in and then taking out the names of guys that weren't there. And he said it came down to about 12 names Ooh. after that. So, I mean, they when you think about not just the numbers that they lost from last year, but the talent, we've talked about it before, Jamari Dickens, uh, Zach Poyser, Vince Brown Jr., Jeremiah Colbrooks, everybody in that class. That's a huge, huge loss for a 1A program. So there are a lot of spots that are going to be filled by guys who have not played a lot of football, have not played any football at a varsity level. There's going to be a pretty massive learning curve for this team, especially in the spring and summer. And that's what they're trying to get through right now. Just like VHS, they got that extra week of practice, that waiver from the FHSA to start spring practice early. Um, and you know, from, from what I understand, it has helped. It's been good. They've, there's been a lot of teaching the basics. Uh, which is something that they expected to have to do this year. And so they're just treating everyone like they've never been there before. And we're going to teach you everything. And if you're relearning something, you know, just embrace it and, uh, you know, relearn it with us. So um, I'll, I'll be curious to see exactly what happens on Thursday night. JT is actually going to be the one who witnesses it live. But uh, I'm, I'm extremely curious to see what this Wildwood team looks like. Fair to classify this spring for them as a crash course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, a lot of guys who have never played varsity football, there are guys who uh, really Pop Warner is their only football experience, and some of those guys are going to be relied on to play this year. And so there's a certain degree to which um, they're just going to have to learn on the fly. And some of those things are uh, things you can't figure out until you get on a field against a live opponent, just like JT was saying. Some of them are going to see some stuff on Thursday night that they thought they were prepared for that maybe they weren't, and that's to be expected. And there are going to be mistakes, and the coaches know that. But uh, they're more interested in seeing you know, what kind of effort are you giving when you make those mistakes, how do you respond to those mistakes, and uh, how you stay in the game. So that's that's kind of where they are right now is we're looking for just you know base-level effort, energy, all the things that you can control – uh, when you're in a, a game like this where you don't have a ton of time to prepare. And for the first time in a few years, at least, the Wildcats do not have a quarterback coming up through the pipeline that you know uh, is going to be taking snaps first night. Yeah, that's the thing. As long as Vince Brown Sr. has been here, there's kind of been an immediate succession plan. He inherited Nate Michael, obviously that, you know, had a great senior season with him in his first year coaching and then but knew at that point that Jonathan Harding was going to be the next guy. Jonathan Harding no longer playing quarterback, no longer at Wildwood. And so they come into this year, they went into last year expecting him to be the quarterback and had to kind of shuffle things around. But coming into this season, I, I guess they knew a little bit, they've known for a little while that he wasn't going to be the guy, but uh, Taylor Keeler is going to take those reps. He's had some, you know, some time as the backup and hasn't played a lot of meaningful minutes though. That's the thing. He, he's been in, in games that the Wildcats were either winning big or losing big. And so I think he threw, I'll have to look this up before the spring game, but he maybe threw 20 passes last year. If that, uh, I, I'd honestly be surprised if that's high. So uh, he's coming in this year and he knows that at least for Thursday night, he has the starting job and it's uh, more or less his to lose. He's the guy in that quarterback room with the most experience, with the most time with the team. And uh, he's, you know, he's determined to go out there and, and prove that he's worthy of keeping that job. So what will Vince Brown Sr. be looking for against Hernando? Like I said, it's it's all going to be about effort and energy. His biggest thing is 
I, I want to see the kids running hard. I want to see that the conditioning that we've done has paid off. I want to see that they are willing to keep going out there and giving effort. And even if we're getting beat up, even if we're getting run over, that they're still coming out play after play after play and trying. Because, again, so much of spring games and you know games like this are about what can you control. You don't get a full scouting report on Hernando. You don't get – uh, a ton of time to prep specifically for them because you're in the middle of just learning the basics of an offense. And he knows that there are going to be errors. Guys are going to drop passes. Guys are going to miss cues. Guys are going to miss blocks. But if you keep coming out and you're going as fast as you can, you're going as hard as you can, then that will satisfy what Vince Brown wants. Because as long as you show him that you're willing to put in the work, he's confident that he can coach you into a competent player. And so we will have that Thursday night. That will be at Hernando, and we will uh, see what happens with, with the Wildcats. It, uh, this is the first time in a while that perhaps both programs have been at that rebuilding stage of the cycle, and uh, well, a lot of building blocks to be laid, I suppose. Uh, Looking at uh, kind of a wrap-up for the remaining spring sports, we will have the state track and field meets this weekend, or not this weekend, but this week at uh, University of North Florida in Jacksonville. Wildwood goes up and competes for a title on Wednesday. VHS will compete on Thursday, and we'll have more full reports after Drew gets back from a couple of days in Jacksonville out at the track there. But VHS baseball and VHS softball both saw their season's end at the regional level. VHS baseball actually pulled off an early win to get to the regional semifinals, but then they ran into a one of their nemesis programs, and Bishop Moore kind of put a quick end to that. They did, and I think Drew did a great job of covering that game. Uh, you, you look at what the Buffalo were able to do with Coach Menendez, uh, that first game against Merritt Island kind of pulled what I guess some people would call an upset, uh, but they did not feel that that was an upset. They felt confident going into that one. Uh, you know, beating the number four team in Class 4A. Uh, and, and they just put together a great performance in that regional quarterfinal. Uh, and they went into the, the regional semis confident as well. I mean, they felt they knew what was ahead of them in that Bishop Moore team. They knew that it was a place that had been, uh, uh, I think what Drew called it was a, what did you call it, Drew? A house of heartbreak. House of heartbreak, yeah. right. So, I mean, it, <laughs> and it had been that. Uh, and so they knew that, but they wanted to, you know, let the past be the past and only look at that game, you know, stay in the moment. That was one thing that Coach Menendez had been saying. We have to stay in the moment. We have to be present. We have to show poise. I mean, and Drew can speak to it more because you look at what Coach Menendez was saying with this group. We wanted to stay in the moment. We didn't want to dwell on the past. We didn't want to think about, you know, all the things, all the negative things that had happened there, all the negative experiences we had. We want to go in there and, and try to just, like I said, rewrite the present or, you know, or write the future uh, for this program. And then things just kind of bottomed out on them in one inning. And that's just how baseball and softball are. Yeah, it, absolutely brutal way for them to go out in that one, especially the way that the first three innings went. They played really well. Tommy Jakes, the junior starter, uh, playing his first year of varsity baseball, did a really good job. I thought he was in some tough spots early, surrendered a run in the first inning, but worked his way out of a couple of jams the Bishop Moore had runners on second and third with no outs in the second, and he got three straight strikeouts to end that inning. Like, I mean, he he worked through some tough spots against a very, very good team. And then I don't know if they'd just seen him enough uh, going through the order a, a time or two and uh, 
or a time and a half, I guess, at this point, but they come up in the t- uh, bottom of the fourth and just start off with five straight hits. And it happened so quickly. Uh, Alex Menendez trying to get someone up in the bullpen, but, you know, second or third pitch, there's a hit. Second pitch, there's a hit. First pitch hit. And it, it just you don't have time to, <laughs> to make the change as needed. And our, at that point, the damage has already been, at least to an extent, has been done. So Bishop Moore takes the lead right there in that string of, uh, string of hits. And they bring in a, a reliever. Um, you know, he he gets two outs quickly, but then kind of gets away from him, and they end up giving up ten runs in that inning to Bishop Moore, and that was kind of the end of it. They would go up eleven to four, end up winning it fourteen to four. Uh, walk off, you know, take of home, uh, ascend from second base on a single to the outfield, and just beat the throw to to walk it off in a mercy rule. So it was a, a pretty devastating way for that one to end. Again, given the way that they played in those first three and a half innings, they were scrappy. They got some timely hits. Uh, it was it was what they needed to do to win a game like that with the team that they have. That's you know not especially offensively effective all the time. But they were playing good defense. They were getting getting some big moments, and uh, it just all got away from them in that one inning. For a team that really the theme of the year has been getting a timely hit, trying to push a couple extra runs across the plate, to have a ten run inning go against you is almost too big a hill to climb. Yeah, it's pretty devastating when you think about how few times they've scored ten runs. In a period in this season so I mean that, that was pretty much it from there and I mean they had they had chased the Bishop Moore starter they were on the on the second guy um, you know they were feeling good about themselves then all of a sudden that happens and you kind of saw it take hold all of a sudden they they had been error free and then a couple errors happened in that inning as well and things just kept spiraling and uh, it's just you know, sometimes that's the way it goes, especially when you're talking about high school baseball and you see your season. And for the case of a couple of guys who are out there, your baseball career coming to an end in front of you, that's a, that's a tough place to sit back and play. It really is. Softball, not quite able to get as far. They lost, well, basically they saw their season end in double emphatic fashion, losing to South Sumter in the district tournament and then they happened to draw South Sumter again in the regional opener and weren't, weren't able to reverse that. They weren't, and it, it was a tough game. But credit to uh, the Buffalo and what they were able to do in that one. Uh, Coach Whitney Cosgrave, you know, you can tell the work that they put in ahead of that game. Uh, they went into it, and it, it became a pitcher's duel. Eighth grader Emily Thompson came out. I mean, she had her stuff working. She she had she pitched a great game. Coach Cosgrave was nervous or concerned of making sure that her eighth grade ace would come out with the requisite energy, would come out with the right mentality, and she certainly did. She answered that bell. I mean, and for to to play as, as well as they did and to have things just kind of go awry on one play. And it was one of those plays that if things were, you know, if the game had gone any different kind of way, if it was an offensive kind of game, that play would have just been a drop in the bucket. But because it was such a defensive battle and a pitcher's duel, that one error where catcher pops up, thinks about throwing out to second, and she makes the throw, and unfortunately no one's there to cover that throw, and the ball just sails in the center field, allowing the South Sumter uh, runner to get to third base. Next batter up, gets a, just a little bloop hit right over the shortstop's head, allows her to trot home. Um, Emily comes out, closes the inning out with another strikeout, but the damage had been done already. And that one run in a game like that might as well have been 10. 
And so, you know, unfortunately, VHS was unable to get their bats working, and that's what Coach Cosgrave said. Yes, of course, that that error hurt, but the main thing is we couldn't get any hits. And when you don't get any hits, you're not going to win. So um, definitely a lot to be uh, optimistic about with that softball program. They're they're so young. I mean, aside from Emily, they have only two seniors in that starting lineup. Uh, in that that regional quarterfinal game. So uh, they definitely have a lot to to look forward to, a lot of young kids within that program, some that are coming from the middle school as well. Uh, So should be much, much brighter days ahead uh, for VHS softball. And this is Cosgrave's second year with the program, and they made the regional tournament last year, made regionals again, maybe ran into pitchers, dual buzzsaw, but you can definitely see that they are making progress as a program. Absolutely, and and Coach Cosgrave, I think, has the right energy for to lead that program. Uh, Her coaching staff as well, you can see that they really care about those girls. We saw it on senior night and how emotional things got because of the just the care and the camaraderie within that group. Uh, so I, I'm confident that they'll be able to make some some big-time runs as, uh, here in the future, especially when you have a pitcher like Emily Thompson there. You can, you can She's someone you can build a program around. Absolutely. And that will do it for our look at the high schools for this week. Uh, next week, uh, again, Drew will be back from track, and we'll recap what happened at the state meets. But, uh, Drew and JT, thank you for Uh, helping us out and giving us the insight there. When we come back, Drew and I will take a look at the game of golf and a big win by Jason Day. Hadn't seen his name in the winner's circle in a long time. And then we'll also preview the PGA Championship after this. With 24 first-place decorations in the 2019 Florida Press Club Awards, the Village's Daily Sun brings first-class journalism to the nation's fastest-growing community every day. Stay informed with the nation's fastest-growing newspaper. Subscribe to The Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. It's been a long time coming, but Jason Day is once again a winner on the PGA Tour. Five years it has been since we saw the man at the top of the, I guess in golf it's a metaphorical podium, but... uh, you know, for for those of us who have been watching the game for a long time, Jason Day is one of the game's you know likable characters. He's a he seems by all accounts to be a good guy. And Jeff, I have to say, it felt good to see him win on Sunday. It did, and and he's gone through a lot of issues. Uh, there was the injury issue, which he's had back problems really his entire career, and has had to deal with them on and off. He he had lost his mother. Um, just being a dad, raising two kids. And then when the 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 issues that, that, that come along, it's just hard to win on the PGA Tour, and it's frustrating, and then that gets into your head. And even Jason Day afterward said, I was really starting to contemplate getting out of the game. Uh, that's And for a, a player that is as high caliber as Jason Day, that is one – more than a dozen times on the PGA Tour, to hear that kind of frustration that that he would actually think about walking away in his 30s uh, shows you kind of the depths of where he had gone before finally starting to get things back together this year. And it was, you know, quite a round too. This again coming off of missing the cut last week at the Wells Fargo at a designated event, comes back this week with the best final round of his career. Shoot 62 on Sunday, still. Just just barely edged it out. Siwoo Kim actually had him tied going into the final hole. 
but uh, a great round on Sunday. And really, it was one of those situations where, yeah, Siwoo Kim had tied him, but that's a birdie hole at 18. And so you figure that uh, as long as Jason Day doesn't do something incredibly catastrophic, uh, that he's got a very good chance to, to pull it out on the final on the final green. And, uh, you know, again, Jason Day had gotten into that position by shooting a, three rounds in the 60s before that 62 really had put uh, a good a good set of rounds together. And maybe that's the one thing that had been missing from what he had done is it's easy to shoot three good rounds and one mediocre one. And it just doesn't work on the PGA tour these days. Yeah. Uh, I've always thought for a long time, and I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but I always thought that if you were an amateur player who was going to try to mimic a professional player, I thought Jason day was a good player to kind of mold yourself off of because everything he does is just very solid. He's not, doing you know crazy stuff with his feet crazy stuff with his hands everything seems like very fundamentally sound very straightforward I don't know if that's your impression of him as well but that's always kind of how he looked to me on TV is if I was going to try to fix my swing and I was going to pull up a video of a golfer to to work on it it would be Jason Day well he would certainly be one of those when healthy and again when you're when your back is acting up on you and you start making those little compensations just to your your body just doesn't want to go in those same positions but yeah if you were to call up the videos of Jason Day in 2014 and 2015 and early 2016 yeah definitely those would be the ones to try to emulate on the golf course we also had an LPGA event this past weekend the Founders Cup Jin Young Ko had a dramatic win and it was uh, as much as it was maybe a dramatic win for her, it may have also been a dramatic loss for Minji Lee. Yeah, it really was. And Ko, to put herself in the playoff at the Founders Cup, came from four shots back. Her 67 on Sunday was two shots better than anybody else fired on that golf course up at uh, Upper Montclair Country Club. So a great round to get her into the playoff. And then both she and Minji Lee hit the fairway, really look like, you know, this is not going to be a single hole playoff. They were within not necessarily makeable birdie range, but ease it up there, take your pars, go back to 18 and try again. But Minji Lee, when she putted from the fringe, and it was almost identical putt as what she had on the 18th hole of regulation, a uh, little bit of too much adrenaline pushed it six feet past right in that range where do you make it or do you not make it? And uh, Jin Young Ko was just a couple feet away, easy tap in par. But when Minji Lee came with the comebacker, you could tell just immediately she hit it, that she had pushed it and it had no chance of going in the hole and a very, very tough three putt to uh, wind up deciding the Founders Cup. And it was, uh, you know, Jin Young Ko has become kind of the expert at winning the Founders Cup, no matter where it's played. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the the funny thing about it is she's won this event three times now, but 
it's never in the same place. It's not like she's just mastered a course. She just happens to play well this week of the year, I guess. Yeah, the uh, well, and it's it's moved on the calendar. Yeah, I guess as it well. has. Hasn't it, it, yeah. it was earlier in the year mm-hmm. when it was in Arizona, and it, they played it on different courses in Arizona. She won on both of those courses, and then they picked that tournament up and decided they wanted to move it closer to uh, not that Phoenix isn't a major metropolitan area, but put it in that New York area. It was an opportunity with a sponsor to do that and now to win at Upper Montclair Country Club, which has been kind of historical LPGA venue for different uh, events before. Uh, Jin Young Ko just really seems to have the magic at the Founders Cup. Well, and it's a you know a significant win for her as well. That's her fifteenth career win, which makes her Hall of Fame eligible. It does, well. Well, it, it's one of the, it puts yeah. her in the range. It takes twenty seven points, and you got to accumulate. It's one point for a win. It's two points for a major. It's one point for winning the scoring uh, average and all of that. But she does now have twenty of the necessary twenty seven points for the LPGA Hall of Fame, and it will still take a little while to get there unless she starts reeling off a couple of majors and they'll put you in the range really quick. But uh, it's now something that you can actually kind of put on the radar for the next, well, however long. (laughs) She either makes it or she doesn't in the end. Over on the Champions Tour, we had the Regents tradition this past weekend. Steve Stricker, unsurprisingly, winning comfortably, running away from the field on Sunday. And that's his third major in five years. We know that he's had a pretty good run here on the Champions Tour. Well, it's his third tradition title in five years. And he's got five senior majors overall. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, we were just talking about Jin Young Ko having the success at the Founders Cup. Uh, Steve Stricker really likes Greystone down in Birmingham. Uh, won it in 2019. There was no tradition in 2020 with, with the pandemic and lost a playoff in 21. Came back and won it last year and then wins it again this year. So Really, that playoff keeps him from winning it four years in a row. And even so, three wins, that makes him only the second uh, Champions Tour golfer to win that event more than twice. Jack Nicklaus won it four times in the first eight years of its existence. Yeah, that's a pretty good mark. But, you know, Jack Nicklaus was a pretty good golfer. so Especially... Uh, in senior majors. Yeah. He didn't enter a lot of Champions Tour event, but he entered the majors and he kept winning them. And then, of course, we have a major this week on the PGA Tour. The PGA Championship will be at Oak Hill outside of Rochester. Justin Thomas was the defending champion last year and down in Tulsa, but uh, he has not looked great lately. Uh, we've had some, you know, some shuffling at the top. There's still the the big three, I suppose, in golf right now with Scotty Scheffler, Rory McIlroy, and John Rahm. Rahm has been, uh, I guess, the most recent winner with the Masters victory. He will have the chance to be the first uh, guy in a number of years uh, to win both the Masters and the second major. It used to be Masters and U.S. Open. The last person to win the first two majors of the calendar year was actually Jordan Spieth winning the Masters and the U.S. Open back in 2015 when the U.S. Open was second on the calendar and it was in uh, Washington. So Rom. Enters with a certain amount of form. Uh, he is surprisingly not the sole favorite for this event, and Scotty Scheffler's getting a lot of a lot of support for that too. But uh, yeah, Justin Thomas, who was a little bit of a surprise winner, came from off the pace 
a year ago, won it in a playoff, and then kind of went back to where he's playing okay, but he's not winning tournaments the way we know Justin Thomas can. In fact, that victory last year at the PGA Championship remains his most recent victory. Yeah, and it was not just that he had to have a crazy Sunday because he had a pretty bad, I think it was Friday or maybe Saturday out there in Tulsa, and then uh, he was he was done, and Mito Pereira had that absolute right. meltdown on 18 where he put the ball in the creek. I mean, all he had to do was, you know, play the hole and not go out of bounds, and, uh, you know, naturally that's what happens. So set up that playoff, and JT wins. And But like you said, it's been a while since he has. Anyone else that you're kind of interested to see? Obviously, there are always guys that are pursuing their first major, a second major, things like that. Um, who else are you kind of, you really have your eyes on this? Well, week? I always look at the guys that come in with a little bit of form. And now that Jason Day has won, can he carry it over another week uh, at a completely different style golf course? He's going from TPC Craig Ranch in Dallas to Oak Hill yeah, up very, in very different. Rochester. I understand the weather forecast for Rochester is for cold, possibly drizzly, Um that's why they call it Soak Hill often. <laughs> um, but so that's going to be interesting. Uh, Brooks Kepka uh, wins PGA Championships, seems to have that uh, ability to play majors well. And we saw what he did at the Masters, even though he hasn't quite gotten back to that level at the LIV uh, events that have happened since then. Uh, the fact that he goes into a PGA championship in reasonably good form is good. And then I think Dustin Johnson too, coming off his win at LIV in Tulsa and playing really solid golf. I think that there, there's a chance there. I think for a lot of these LIV guys, they look at these majors. If they can get in, they want to show a little bit. Cameron Smith has said it before, and Cameron Smith comes in off a of 61 to lose that playoff to Dustin Johnson. So uh, I guess in this continuing push-pull between the PGA Tour and LIV, it's the only time we get the two of them together. And my eyes always tend to gravitate toward who can be the disruptor in this case. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see this weekend for sure. And uh, I did, this is my fault, did just kind of gloss over Liv real quick just because we didn't talk about it. Uh, Dustin Johnson had to win a three-way playoff with Cameron Smith and Brandon Grace to win this past weekend. In yeah, perhaps the two best players on LIV yeah. in a playoff, along with Brandon Grace, who has won PGA Tour events before. He comes in with a, a little bit of momentum. Brandon Grace is a shorter hitter, which I don't think is going to help at a PGA Championship when it's long and cold and perhaps a little bit drizzly. But uh, again, I think Dustin Johnson and Cameron Smith can be right in that mix. Um, and, and they're playing well. And, and you take a look at the, the last number of winners on the LIV Tour, the, the criticism last year was that you were getting these who-are-they type players. But and we've seen Brooks Kepka win. We've seen Dustin Johnson win. We've seen Taylor Gooch, who I thought was always an up-and-coming golfer. He was golfer. an up-and-coming absolutely by last year. Yeah, and, and so to see him win a couple of times, uh, the better golfers are, are starting to rise on that circuit and I think that uh, again they can carry that momentum into majors just as easily as anybody else yeah and I mean this was the goal right to have situations where it's Dustin Johnson versus Cameron Smith that's that's your ideal scenario if you're you know Greg Norman or anyone running live golf so um, 
but yeah, we'll we'll see how they perform this weekend. Obviously, they're going to head to you know very very different golf course that they played last week as well. Oak Hill uh, is going to is going to be a little bit different from Tulsa, but um, you know we'll see how it plays out. It's always fun, and of course we'll talk about it next week. That'll be the focus of our golf segment when we return on next week's podcast. We're going to take a quick break right now though, and we'll come right back with JT Wilcox again in studio as we wrap up the second round of the NBA playoffs. Right after this. From high school heroes to softball to the latest on the Village's fairways, the Daily Sun brings you the best in local sports. Stay informed with the nation's fastest-growing newspaper in the nation's fastest-growing community. Subscribe to the Village's Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. We'll wrap it up with a little NBA playoff talk here on the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. J.T. Wilcox coming back in to uh, offer us his expertise, cloaked in a little bit of uh, purple and gold, I suppose, as the uh, Lakers eliminate the Golden State Warriors. Drew is uh, with us again, and the uh, we're down to the final four teams, uh, some that were expected. You know, the Denver Nuggets were the number one seed in the West. The Los Angeles Lakers were not, uh, nor were the Miami Heat, the eighth seed in the East, uh, taking on the number two seed in, in the Boston Celtics. And so I'll just throw it out with a very, very open-ended question. What kind of sticks with you as we come out of the conference semifinals going into the finals? For me, it's Jimmy Butler. And I think the greatness. How can it not be? Yeah, I think the the greatness of Jimmy Butler. uh, And you look at him and you watch him during the regular season, like, okay, yeah, I get it. He's probably been an all-star before and kind of a colorful, interesting kind of guy. But come playoff time, he turns into a completely different basketball. Playoff Jimmy, they say. Yeah, playoff (laughs) Jimmy or Jimmy Buckets, either one. I, I mean, but what he's been able to do leading that team, and I saw something on social media, and I couldn't have agreed with it more. It said that LeBron James and Shaquille O'Neal are two of the Heat's greatest players, or the two greatest players in Miami Heat history. But Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler are the two greatest Miami Heat players. Mm. And I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, and I think you, you frowned it up, Drew, but it's basically <laughs> saying – that talent-wise and the players they are, Shaquille I, I O'Neal. I understand what the point is with LeBron and Shaq, that their greatness is not limited to their time with the Heat. But Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler are the ultimate like Heat players. But I, like, I don't understand how you take 2011 to 2014, 15 LeBron out of that. I feel like you, he should be in that still. No, but he's that. That's but that's the thing. He's one of the great, if not him and Shaq, are the two greatest players to wear a Heat uniform. Yes. But Dwayne Wade and Jimmy Butler are the two of the greatest to wear heat uniforms. If that makes sense. No. <laughs> no. And frankly, it doesn't. You said the same thing twice. And, and he, like, I don't know. I'm sorry. But that four years of LeBron James is still better than the four years we've had of Jimmy Butler in Miami. Okay, I get it. But as someone who's not a Heat fan. but if I'm I had also to, not a Heat but fan. But to no. put, my, put myself in the shoes of a Heat fan. I think we, if I were a Heat fan, I would say we look at Jimmy Butler and what he's been able to do. He doesn't have Chris Bosh here. He doesn't have Dwayne Wade here. You know, he doesn't have Ray Allen and Shane Battier. He doesn't have those guys. He's got Max Struess and somebody named Highsmith. 
I mean, he's got Bam Adebayo. He's got last year's sixth man of the year in Tyler Hero. Let's, let's not pretend he's doing it with nobody. But Hero's nobody. been hurt. Hero has been Hero hurt. Has been hurt. These playoffs, yes. And I'm not trying to take anything away from what Jimmy Butler has done in these playoffs because I love Jimmy. I think he's been incredible. I just, I just don't understand the the non-LeBron part of this argument. Like with whatever, whatever that quote was, it just makes no sense to me <laughs> I, I like i said i got it because it was saying like Shaq and 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 lebron their greatness it transcends whatever uniform that they put on they're definitely two of the greatest to ever wear those uniforms yeah. but what Dwayne wade and what jimmy butler have done for the miami heat as an organization far surpasses i understand Shaq brought the heat in a, a ring i understand lebron brought the heat multiple rings and wade was a part of that but it was wade county it became Wade County. Now Jimmy Butler has taken over with Big Face Coffee and all the things that he's doing there. So it's just a bit different, you know, and, and, and again, I get it. So that's that's been the story for me is that Jimmy Butler and the way he's been able to propel this team. And I think now going into this conference, conference finals matchup with the Celtics, the third time in four seasons that the Heat and the Celtics are matching up uh, in the playoffs, we'll get to see just how good Jimmy really, playoff Jimmy is. Drew, your takeaways from the conference semifinals. Well, I I think the biggest thing is that I, I feel very validated in that sometime around late February, I said that the Lakers might actually be championship contenders, and mm-hmm. they're in a conference final, which I think by definition makes you a championship contender. Um, when, when you think about a team is four wins away from playing in a championship, uh, I think they've reached that level. I, I'm just really impressed with the turnaround of that team. The job that they did going from being dead in the water, absolutely horrendous to watch for the better part of a year and a half, getting off of the Russell Westbrook contract, which was a terrible trade to begin with, and getting back assets that not only made the team better, but are playing to the level that they are, uh, I think has, has you know really been impressive I, I there's not many other words for it the turnaround is kind of unprecedented to remake an entire roster and, and be at the point where they were where they were you know borderline out of the playoffs end up in a play-in game where they were one of the hotter teams in the NBA over the back half of the season get themselves into that seven seed and then knock off two quality teams on their way through here the defending champs and the two-seeded Grizzlies I mean, that's that's a pretty good run, and they're doing it with LeBron and AD, but also they're doing it with Austin Reeves and big games from Lonnie Walker and big games from Rui Hachimura, and they're coming from pieces that are able to do more by Westbrook not being on the floor or guys that were part of those deals that they made at the deadline. And I think that uh, this is a really impressive recovery from Rob Palinka. I don't want to call it a, a masterful job because he did did make the Westbrook trade <laughs> at one point, even if that wasn't necessarily 100% his idea, but he did do the deal. So this is a great recovery by the Lakers, and I, I think that this is going to be an interesting matchup for them in the conference finals, so which, which was uh, we'll get the, to in a minute. Which was the bigger factor then, getting Westbrook out of the L.A. Laker uniform or the guys that they got I, back well, I think, in return? I think, it's both. I think it's both. I think there was literally, if you were just telling Westbrook to go away and saying, well, you, you can live out the rest of your contract and like, Palm Springs or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it would have been addition by subtraction. But then in addition to that, they also got addition by addition, adding guys like 
D'Angelo Russell, D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, Van, Jerry Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt. Yeah, has right. been huge. So I mean, there, there, it was twofold. And again, the kind of leap that we saw from them, I think, kind of exhibits just how much he was holding them back, and also how much they kind of missed the depth, uh, missed the ability to move the ball around and have those different options. Right. I think what Rob Palenka did was essentially what happened with the guy who invented burn ins. He's like, oh, no, we burnt the meat. And it was like, oh, wait, I think if I just put some more sauce on it, throw it back on the grill, <laughs> it's burnt-ins, and they're delicious. Uh, so I think that's really what it was. They did a great job of fixing the airplane while it was in the air. Um, and you look at what LeBron James and this LeBron, this LeBron James and Anthony Davis pairing has been able to do. They're now 6-1 and one in playoff series where both have been healthy. And that one that they lost – Anthony Davis got hurt in the first round against the Phoenix Suns, your Phoenix Suns, Jeff, mm. when the, the the Lakers were up 2-1, AD goes down, they end up losing that series. Uh, so, And the, we saw it within the bubble season, which now I think has been validated because these are the same four teams that were in the Final Four in the bubble season as well. Uh, but we saw it in the bubble season. You give AD and LeBron James – quality guys around them, they're more than enough to carry that team pretty far. And I, I think that this team now is much more like that team that they had in 2020. It's a lot of guys that can shoot threes, that do play defense, that give a lot of effort when they're off the ball, which is what you need when you have a ball-dominant player, a guy who's most effective with his hands on the ball like LeBron James. He's not been that lately. He's picking his spots a lot more. He's kind of hiding out in the corner for stretches, conserving a lot of energy. But we saw in that Golden State series how important it was because when they would get to a moment where they could turn the game – all of a sudden, LeBron's involved in everything. You know, he'll come back down three straight plays, get a transition bucket. He'll get back on defense, and it just takes that one stretch for them to put it away. He did it in the third quarter of that game, six uh, to end the series. Comes out hot, gets the uh, gets the Lakers a lead. They come out in the third quarter. They say we're not letting Golden State back into us. Over this entire run with Steph and Clay and Draymond, the third quarter has been the nightmare quarter for opposing teams of the Warriors. And the Lakers said, we're not doing it. And LeBron comes out and played a really, really hard third quarter, and they end up burying the Warriors in that stretch. And so I think that he's really mastered how to conserve his energy, utilize it in the right moments. He's you know still apparently dealing with the foot injury, so I think that might have something to do with it as well. But he's a player that uh, is so smart about what he does, where he is on the court, knowing what a team needs when, that he can still turn a game without giving you 100% all the time. Now, the Warriors, uh, I think it was Steph Curry that said, you know, we were just not championship caliber this year. But where is the Warriors as, you know, the now ousted champions? Do they have the pieces to just kind of get back into it next year? I think you see that them trying to service these that dual timeline situation with trying Moses to- Moody and Jonathan Kaminga not really panning out. Uh, same thing, Jordan Poole disappeared on them late uh, in that series. Uh, so he's another one of those younger guys that was supposed to be on that younger timeline. And then we also, I think we saw the decline of Klay Thompson, or we're, we're watching the decline of Klay Thompson. And it's okay because he's – still going to be one of the best shooters in NBA history. He's going to go down as one of the best shooters in NBA history. Uh, at his peak, he was probably one of the best defenders in the NBA for about a four or five year stretch. And But Father Time is undefeated. And I think we're seeing the decline of Klay Thompson, who's dealt with multiple leg injuries as well. Uh, Draymond Green, for all his antics, which I think are Bush League, I think 
we're starting to see a slip there with him as well. Like he is a complete non-factor in terms of scoring the ball. Of course, he can still rebound. He can still defend. He can still, you know, kind of grease the wheels of their offense a bit. But I think he's a complete offensive liability otherwise. So I think it may be time for them to move move on from there. As we enter the twilight, I think of Steph Curry's uh, prime, where I think maybe he has one or two absolute prime carrier team to a finals caliber years. Uh, so we, I, I want to see how they start to reshape that team now. And then we get to the two teams that absolutely laid an egg at the end of their series, one being the <laughs> Philadelphia 76ers getting, getting blown out in game seven, even though they have, you know, the NBA's MVP and in, in Joel Embiid. And then the Phoenix Suns once again in the in in the conference semifinals, just not able to find a way to stop the opposing team's top scorer, and now they're in the market for a coach, and maybe Philadelphia will by the end of the week too. Yeah, I had a friend who texted me and said uh, during that game and said Phoenix should be forced to trade Devin Booker <laughs> for, for putting him through this. It's just, I mean, it's brutal. It, that's the second year in a row though that they've had a really horrendous final loss in the playoffs. Yes. So that Dallas game last year where they just showed up with nothing. nothing and so you go and you get Kevin Durant and that's supposed to solve that problem at the very least you should be able to score the basketball uh and, and be competitive turn a game into a shootout if you have to and they couldn't even do that against this Nuggets team which uh, by all accounts is not the best defensively doesn't have a ton of depth obviously Nikola Jokic is great Jamal Murray's great Aaron Gordon's a really high-end third guy but there's no reason that a team with Chris Paul Kevin Durant Devin Booker and a former number one overall pick at center should be down 25 points at halftime, 30 points at halftime of an elimination game. It's it's terrible. Well, Phoenix depth. If you say if you question the Nuggets is depth, uh, no Phoenix depth. Phoenix is depth. I mean, I saw Jeff over there on the sideline. They needed bodies. So I mean, they, yeah, it, I'm not I'm not saying that they don't have anything behind that. But at, again, at the very least with those guys, you have to be able to get enough offense to stay competitive in a game. That was the whole design of this trade is if we can put Devin Booker and Kevin Durant together for a few years, we're going to be able to win because we can score with anybody. And they didn't do that. They didn't. And I think Chris Paul let them down per usual being hurt. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's par for the course. If you're expecting him, and especially now at his ju- this juncture of his career, I think he's 38 years old now as well. Um, he's just not going to be healthy. Uh, and I think DeAndre Ayton and his lack of a relationship with former head coach Monty Williams, I think, really kind of bubbled to the surface once again. Um, and then his just Ayton's inability to match up with a player like Nikola Jokic, who could have easily been a three times three consecutive time MVP. Um, so. It was just, it was just a bad matchup, and I, I think ultimately when you have a guy like Devin Booker who can score the ball, is an okay defender, but not. I don't think he's someone who you can rely on and say, "Hey, take us to the championship." And then you look at a guy like Kevin Durant who has that talent for sure. Is probably a top five all time in terms of basketball talent, but I'm not sure he's top five all time in terms of basketball attitude. He's not a guy that says get on my back, I'm leading us to a championship. When he was with Golden State, he didn't have to do that. He was just a mercenary, essentially, went in there, was just, as he likes to put it, to just go hoop, 
while you had Steph Curry to be the true leader of that team and, you know, Draymond Green to be the, uh, you know, the emotional or vocal leader of that team, and he was just able to play. Whereas now in Phoenix, he's like, hey, KD kind of take us there, and I don't think that's just really his game. So it was just a bad mix for Phoenix. And it was also reported that uh, the Suns' new owner, Matt Ishbia, uh, famed now for the flop that he took against Nikola Jokic, uh, but that he never meshed with Monty Williams. And maybe that was the factor that led to such a quick dismissal. Although now the, the, the Suns, kind of like the Bucks, you know, in firing Mike Budenholzer. Now, who's better to bring in? I guess Budenholzer's available. Yeah, right. Somebody actually suggested that the Bucks and Suns should just trade, trade coaches. coaches because that's the weakness uh, for the, the – should just trade coaches because the weakness of those teams is the strength of the other coach. Yeah. So. That's not a, it's not a terrible idea. I, I don't know that I love Mike Budenholzer for the Suns. I wouldn't mind Monty Williams for the Bucks. I think that'd be an interesting experiment. I think he and Giannis would, would get on really well. I think they'd be a nice, a nice pairing. I'd agree with that. And I think honestly, and though this, we're not, this is not official. We're not reporting here, but I think, <laughs> I think Doc Rivers would be good in Phoenix. I think I, I think Doc would be good in Phoenix because he would then give them a scapegoat. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. He would was, give them okay. a scapegoat. That's what Matt okay, Ishbia has in mind. That's, that's what KD needs more than his own ring is somebody to blame Somewhere, when right. they flame out in the playoffs. Okay, there we go. That right. makes sense then. Yeah, okay. so I think Doc would be great in Phoenix because he gives them a new scapegoat. I, man, I thought it, I was really I was really about to question. I was like, I cannot believe someone is endorsing the idea of Doc Rivers taking over another contender. No, it's like I said, it gives him a, a, a scapegoat okay. so when things inevitably go wrong. What was this, his third 3-1 blown lead? Yeah, oh when he God. gets up in a series and they blow that lead, we can blame it on Doc and he'll be ushered back, hopefully, to Orlando again. Enough about the losers. Let's talk about the uh, series that are still in front of us. We'll start with the Eastern Conference the eight seed Miami with Jimmy Buckets, Boston, the two seed, a lot of balance in that lineup. How do you see it? Go ahead, Drew. Well, this is uh, this is a funny one because on paper, Boston should win this going away. Should. And that has been the case in every round so far against the Miami Heat. So I really have no idea what to do with it. Boston beat them last year. Uh, obviously, they were a Jimmy Buck, uh, a Jimmy Butler dead-legged three-pointer away <laughs> from not going to that finals against the Warriors. Uh, and I, I just don't know. The way that the Heat are playing right now, uh, again, they're playing out of their minds. They, they don't have the talent. They don't have the depth that Boston has. But Boston's had that all year, and I've been disappointed by them for most of the year. I think that with Ime Udoka departing, they lost a little of something. They lost a little bit of a mental toughness. I think that... Uh, Joe Missoula is a little bit out of his depth, maybe not permanently, but uh, you know he came into this year not expecting to be a head coach, and he was what the fourth, the fourth guy in line for that job last year. They yeah. had the head coach, and then two assistant coaches ahead of him who got hired away to different jobs, and you know he gets thrown into this role, uh, what two weeks before the season, if that, and just kind of had to manage his way through it. And we're seeing in the playoffs, it's a different animal, and he struggled a little bit in moments, and. Meanwhile, on the other side, Miami might be the best coached team in the league. And, and I say might. I mean, they're, they, they probably are. Eric Spolster has been incredible. And then you take what Jimmy Butler's done on top of that, and I, I think it really comes down to what kind of you know, mental fortitude does Boston have. That's something that has been called into question with this group. 
year after year. And last year they seem to have figured it out, and this year they seem to have regressed. And if Jimmy Butler is playing you extremely physical and Bam Adebayo is stopping stuff at the rim, are they going to settle for bad shots? Are they going to get into these funks where Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum just kind of settle for playing ISO and taking mid-range jumpers and Marcus Smart is you know, driving at everybody or just throwing up 10 threes in a game and that's how they lose. And the Heat, I feel like if there's a team that can force them into doing that or kind of trick them into playing their worst game, it's Miami. And I agree with everything you just said, but I don't know if the Heat will be able to do that four times. Yeah, that I mean that's the trick, and so but I I want to know who's who's grabbing hold of the controls and pulling that plane out of the nosedive if they go in and do that and if they lose that in game one that way. I, I think I look at guys like Al Horford, I look at Robert Williams, I think the addition of Malcolm Brogdon also gives them another adult in the room, so to speak, uh, someone that is not going to go out there and go full Leroy Jenkins and just pitch up shots like Marcus Smart would, <laughs> you know. So it's – it's. I think, the like I said, that Malcolm Brogdon addition, I think another year Al Horford, who's one of the steadiest hands you can have on the tiller in terms of a guy uh, on your basketball team. Uh, and I think for all of their flaws, and you laid them out perfectly with Boston, I just don't know if the Heat have enough to – do that four times against this Boston team. I mean, because you look at this Heat roster, and it's like if you ever watch one of those NBA commercials for like a different product, for like Gatorade <laughs> or or a Sprite, and it's like it's an like NBA one team, star and a bunch of faces. And it's like guys. one guy you recognize a bunch with, <laughs> surrounded by like a bunch of guys in random uniform numbers. Yeah. That's what it's like when you watch this Heat team. <laughs> so you see Jimmy Butler, or you see Bam Adebayo, and like who are the rest of these guys? Uh, but no. I think Kyle Lowry's, you know, if he's able to give them anything, I think, you know, St. Max Struess, Caleb Martin, those guys. Duncan Robinson. Duncan, I mean, it, it, not household names by no. far, but they they play good basketball in that system. I just don't know if they'll be able to do it for four games, to win four games. And then in the West, we have the all-time scoring leader, the the one of the best, if not the best, to ever play the game, pulling his – franchise out of the play-in into potentially a, another NBA finals against a Denver team that has an MVP caliber player, even though he didn't win it this year and a frenzied city that's still looking to get to its first NBA finals. Absolutely. And honestly, this is probably the best version of the Denver Nuggets that I've seen uh, with Jokic. Um, I think they're looking the best this season. I think Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, a former Laker who helped that team win a championship a couple years ago, was a great addition for them. Um, and I just think they're playing a different – they're playing at a different level now. And I think if they don't do it this year, then it'll never happen. I think everyone – I think everything is kind of lining up for them uh, to finally break through. With that said, and I'm trying to – bury my Laker biases here. With ever that, so slightly. Ever, all right, but with that said, this Lakers team does present some matchup problems for Denver. Uh, Anthony Davis is a guy that can guard Nikola Jokic one-on-one. You don't that necessarily have to double him because Anthony Davis, contrary to most NBA stars that we see who dominate games with being able to put up 50 points like Jokic did against Phoenix or you know to go out there and get a triple-double and just have his hands on every play, 
on offense, AD can control a game on defense, and he can just totally kind of stonewall uh, a team's offensive attack on the other end. And if he's able to do that again, like he did that against Memphis, he did it against Golden State. If he's able to do that again, I think they can cut. The Lakers can thwart a lot of what Denver likes to do, and it's predicated on uh, Jokic being able to distribute the basketball. And if AD can disrupt that, the Lakers have a chance to maybe steal this series. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is that Anthony Davis is a guy who is willing to go out there and play defense first, and he is the kind of matchup that gives Nikola Jokic problems because the Lakers can kind of decide, all right, we're going to put one guy on him, and then we can either decide if we want to let him get his points or if he's going to get everyone else involved and just decide night to night which the best strategy is. You're not going to completely eliminate Nikola Jokic because he's he's good enough that when he is locked down, he's going to find an option, and it's usually going to be a good one. But Anthony Davis is going to go out. In games four and game six, he took a total of 13 shots. Tell me another max max contract superstar that'd be willing to do that in the playoffs. I mean, and he, still be effective, a hundred percent. And he he was on the floor the whole time uh, because he was playing lights out defense against the Warriors, and they won Game Four and Game Six, and those were basically the deciding games of the series. And he was defensively dominant. He was pulling down rebounds, and that's exactly the kind of player that they need to go up against Jokic. Is you can't allow him second chance opportunities. You can't allow him easy outlet passes. You can't allow him easy access to the basket forcing your defense to collapse on him. Anthony Davis is going to stay in front of him. Anthony Davis is going to be able to patrol the rim when he takes it inside. And that's the kind of player that has frustrated Nikola Jokic in the past. And I think could be a tough matchup for them this time around. And I think that they can do some of the stuff like we saw, um, like we saw Boston do to Philly in game seven of that series where they were bringing, uh, pulling, Embiid out of the post and then running that pick and roll against him and Jokic is not nearly the defensive player that Embiid is and so I think if you can get him into those kind of switches AD could have a dominant all-around game where he's going to end up getting opportunities to score because Nikola Jokic can't match up with him on that end so uh, I think that that's that's really the key one I think that he's going to have Anthony Davis is going to be a much bigger role this time around it's going to start on defense but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's at least a couple games where they get him going uh, on the offensive glass as well. Clip and save time. Who wins the series and in how many games? Oh, this is a tough one. Both series. <laughs> uh, the West one is really hard for me. I'm going to take Boston. I'm going to take Boston in the East, and I'm going to have it go six. Um, but, I, man, I, it's so hard for me to just look at that Heat team and and, and think that they're just going to roll over. Um and then in the West, man, I, I'd love to see the Lakers do it. Uh, not a Lakers fan at all. Got no loyalties out there. But it's just so fun what they've been able to do. It's always, you know, it, it's always exciting to see LeBron in these legacy talks when you're talking about all-time greatness going to the finals in year 20 as, you know, probably the best player on his team, at least as the, um, you know, one of the central pieces of that team. Uh, might be one of the last chances we have to see that. I'm going to take the Lakers in seven, and it's more of a a want than a, a think. Uh, I, I think that Denver has to be favored, even given all the matchup stuff that we just talked about, but I'd really like to see it happen, so I'm going to go with it. So nothing would put me in a more fragile state of mind than for it to be a Lakers-Celtics NBA Finals. <laughs> I, as, as much as we saw... Uh, our, our great dear friend, great colleague Ryan Weiss, and how, how much he dealt with 
uh, the emotions of having his Eagles be in the Super Bowl. I would be an emotional and mental wreck if there was a Lakers-Celtics NBA Finals, given how much my disdain for the Boston Celtics. Uh, so I would like to see, and I'm going to be like Drew, I think this is more of a, a want than a think. I would like to see Lakers heat because I want to see that rematch of Big Face Coffee, Mr. Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Buckets beat Boston because then they fall short. Uh, so that's great. So, and I think you know so what? There's the want. There's the want. But ultimately, I think Boston beats Miami in six because uh, just the depth that Boston has, the quality depth that they have, is just ultimately too much. The smoke and mirrors kind of all all the tricks run out uh, for Spo in Miami. So, and then with this looking objectively at this Denver series. Timber's really good. And like I said, I think they're playing their best basketball this year. I mean, they've been the number one seed in the West just about all season long, uh, even when they kind of went through a malaise towards the end of the regular season because they had locked up the one seed for so long. And But then the way that they came out and took care of business against Minnesota, dispatched uh, Phoenix in six games, especially blowing them out in game six. And now they're coming into this one well-rested, hungry, it's, it's going to be a tough road to hold for the Lakers. So I, I'm picking Denver in six. So Denver, Denver, South, Boston, Denver, Boston, both in six. Lakers, Boston. Yeah. So that that's clip and save. <laughs> oh, oh, Jimmy Butler. He's printing. He's printing out the transcript and stapling this to the bulletin board in the locker room for sure. I like to shout out to the three guys at the Daily Sun for picking against us. <laughs> I'm out of this. Chuck, <laughs> Kenny, Shaq, JT, JT Drew, Drew right. all against us. <laughs> all, everybody was against us. All right. And that will do it. It's a note, good note to wrap up on for the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. And, of course, we thank you for downloading us, tuning us in, listening, all of that good stuff, whether you get it on Google Play, on Spotify, wherever, like, rate, all of the good stuff. We appreciate all of it. We also thank... Chris Siegel and Nick Feely and our higher-ups in sports and otherwise at the Daily Sun for letting us get together and share some laughs over basketball every week. And uh, again, thank you for listening. And until next week, we'll see you out on the playing fields. 